You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 95, The Battle of Trois-Rivières, or Three Rivers. We last left Canada back in episode 90, with the arrival of the first British reinforcements arriving in Quebec in May 1776. Even before the main force arrived, the Continentals, then under the command of General John Thomas, began their retreat up the St. Lawrence River towards Sorel. There, the St. Lawrence River meets with the Richelieu River, providing a water route back to Lake Champlain and New York. General Thomas had arrived in Canada himself, bringing reinforcements just a short time before. Thomas and most of his reinforcements, though, quickly contracted smallpox. By mid-May, Thomas himself was incapacitated and blinded by the disease. General David Wooster resumed command of Continental forces. As the Continentals retreated, the British relief force continued to arrive in Quebec. London had sent General Johnny Burgoyne the general we met back in Boston when he served as fourth in command behind Generals Gage, Howe, and Clinton. Burgoyne had returned to London in late 1775 because Boston was pretty miserable, he had nothing to do there, and he wanted to take care of his sick wife in London. A while in London, Burgoyne briefed all top officials in the North Ministry about the situation in America and what they needed to do to fix everything. Although the main British force would be headed to New York, London also sent a large relief force to retake Canada. The ministry put Burgoyne at the head of this force of about 8,000 soldiers, roughly 5,000 regulars and 3,000 German mercenaries, mostly from Brunswick. The first relief ships began to arrive in Quebec in early May, but the bulk of the force did not arrive with Burgoyne until early June. Once they arrived, the more senior general, Guy Carleton, assumed overall command, with Burgoyne serving as second-in-command. Secretary of State Germain had intended Burgoyne to lead the army, but his letter to Carleton on this point never arrived. With the 8,000 reinforcements along with the militia and others already defending Quebec, the combined British force reached between eleven and 12,000 men the sight of an overwhelming number of British forces inspired many local Indian tribes to mobilize in support of the British, as well as many French Canadians to join local militias also backing British authorities. By some estimates, when you add in sailors, Indian allies, and other support, the entire body reached nearly 20,000. Even before all the reinforcements arrived, General Carleton began to deploy his forces up the St. Lawrence River after the Americans. To contest the British advance, Washington sent another 3,000 Continentals under the command of General John Sullivan. 
General Thomas finally died of smallpox on June 2nd near Fort Chambly on the Richelieu River, the same day as General Sullivan arrived. Even before his death, because Thomas had been too sick to command for many weeks, General Wooster had been in overall command, and he now had to turn over command to Sullivan. General Wooster had been annoyed since he first got his commission as a brigadier general, thinking he should have been made a major general. Now, after being replaced a second time as commander in Canada, Wooster decided to call it quits. In July, he resigned his commission and returned to Connecticut. There, he would resume his role as a major general in the Connecticut militia. The new commander, General Sullivan, had to contend with more than just an overwhelming enemy. Most of his army was dying of smallpox, and most of his officers hated each other. Sullivan himself was the son of indentured servants from Ireland who had settled in New Hampshire. Sullivan's low background made him as touchy as anyone about perceived slights or disrespect. He had made a career as a lawyer. He grew rich but had a reputation for being especially aggressive in foreclosing on people's homes and collecting debts. Because of his wealth and prominence in the community, and a friendship with the royal governor John Wentworth, Sullivan had received a commission as a major in the New Hampshire militia and served in the New Hampshire assembly. He soon sided with the Patriots, though, and served as a delegate to the First Continental Congress. In December 1774, Sullivan participated in the raid on Fort William and Mary that I discussed way back in episode 51. This helped give him credibility as a soldier when he returned to the Second Continental Congress. When it came time to pick generals, Sullivan became part of the first group of brigadier generals in the new Continental Army. Sullivan had served unremarkably, but also without embarrassing himself during the Siege of Boston. Now, Washington gave him his first real test by trusting him with the independent command in Canada. Sullivan did not know just how large a force he was facing in Canada. Even if his entire army had been fit for duty, the five to 6,000 men faced a force more than double their size, perhaps triple. The fact was, though, that more than half of his force was unfit for duty, mostly thanks to smallpox, which continued to ravage the army. Undeterred, General Sullivan committed a large portion of his army to Trois-Rivières, which I'm now going to call Three Rivers because my French pronunciation is probably terrible. Three Rivers sat on the St. Lawrence River between Quebec, where the British were still landing, and Sorel, where the Continentals were retreating down toward New York. Sullivan did not anticipate a simple holding action, though. His letters from the time indicate that he planned to defeat the British at Three Rivers, then move his invasion force back down the river to Quebec, where he would finally capture the city for the Continental Army. If you find my explanation of the geography a little confusing, I've put up a map available at blog.amrevpodcast.com. Sullivan deployed General William Thompson, with most of his recently arrived reinforcements, to retake Three Rivers from the British. General Thompson is someone else I've mostly ignored up until now. He had joined the fight at Cambridge a year earlier, as the head of a Pennsylvania rifle company. Thompson had not really impressed Washington, since control of the rifle companies became one of his main discipline headaches. 
Even so, Thompson's riflemen successfully fended off a very minor British attack in November 1775, which brought him to the notice of Congress. Pennsylvania's Quaker tradition left it with few leaders suited for military command. But Congress hoped to represent all the colonies, and Pennsylvania was by far the largest state without a general in the army. So, in March 1776, despite Washington's reservations, Congress commissioned Thompson a brigadier general. Two months later, Washington deployed Thompson, along with General Sullivan, to help retake Canada. Thompson's regimental leaders included some impressive names. His colonels, Anthony Wayne and Arthur St. Clair, would both rise to be generals in their own rights. Many years after the Revolution ended, St. Clair would rise to command the entire U.S. Army. Also among Thompson's men was Captain James Wilkinson, who would also eventually command the entire U.S. Army many years later. Tasked to take Three Rivers on the night of June 7th, General Thompson took a force of nearly 2,000 Continentals on a night march designed to surprise the relatively small British force there. His forces would arrive at the town the following morning. There, British Lieutenant Colonel Simon Fraser commanded about a thousand regulars, with another thousand in reserve, still mostly aboard ships in the river. Thompson and his Pennsylvania soldiers were new to the area and really did not know the land very well. They hired a local French-Canadian guide who was either highly incompetent or more likely deliberately trying to sabotage their attack. The Continentals had planned to take a trail through the forest where their presence would be hidden from any British ships moving along the river. Instead, the guide convinced them to take a road along the river to clear a house that he claimed contained an enemy outpost. When they arrived, the house was empty. Rather than track back for several miles to take the trail they wanted, the guide suggested they cut through the forest and connect up with the trail. General Thompson's force set off, only to find themselves getting stuck in a swamp. Thompson began to question his faith in his guide and decided to turn around and go back to the river. At the river, an enemy ship spotted them. It opened fire and then moved down the river to alert their main British forces. The Continental Battalion continued to struggle forward despite losing the element of surprise. They waded through a swamp, sometimes waist-deep, before finally arriving at the outskirts of Three Rivers. There, they found a relatively small detachment of British waiting for them, already lined up for battle, supported by field artillery, and supplemented with Indian warriors. The Continental Colonel Anthony Wayne immediately launched an attack against both flanks of the enemy lines. His attack against the smaller British advance force caused them to break and run, but the British reserves counterattacked and pushed back Wayne's regiment. By this time, other Continental regiments had emerged from the swamp and joined the attack. Both sides fought furiously, but the British had the better ground and were supported by artillery on ships in the river. Wayne attempted to rally his soldiers, only to find that most of them had already abandoned him. He had only about 20 soldiers, as he finally decided to retreat back into the swamp. Wayne then maintained a rearguard action, firing on the enemy before falling back in order to give time for the main body of Continentals to escape. Now, if Wayne's bravery sounds impressive, 
you have to remember that our records of this battle mostly came from Wayne's own reports. So, while he probably did perform well that day, he also had every incentive to make himself sound every bit the hero and put all of his actions in the best possible light. On the field, the Continentals had lost between 30 and 50 dead. We only have a British estimate to go on, and another 30 or so wounded. The British lost 8 dead and 9 wounded. Over the rest of the day, the British attempted to capture the scattered retreating Continentals, taking over 200 prisoners, including General Thompson himself. Most of the force made its way back to General Sullivan and the main army at Sorel. Many of them staggered in after days of fumbling their way through the woods and swamp. British commander General Carleton arrived at Three Rivers that evening to congratulate his officers and men on their victory. To the disappointment of many, Carleton ordered his army not to pursue the retreating enemy. It's not entirely clear why, but one officer noted that Carleton commented that he didn't want to feed that many prisoners, that he didn't want to see them starve in a Quebec prison, and that their arrival back at the Continental Army would only demoralize the enemy. The British would soon parole General Thompson, but under the terms of his parole, he could not return to duty until exchanged for a British officer of equal rank. Thompson would spend the next four years in Pennsylvania complaining to anyone who would listen about how Congress was dragging its feet on exchanging him. His complaining eventually led to Congress issuing him a letter of censure as well as a successful libel suit from a delegate. I've never actually seen any clear documentation on this point, but my own suspicion is that Washington did not want the general back and was happy to keep him sidelined on parole. Finally, in 1780, Thompson would be exchanged for a German officer who had been captured at Saratoga in 1777 and who had also been on parole for several years. Even then, though, Thompson would not return to active duty and would die a year later in 1781 from natural causes, still living at home in Pennsylvania. Despite the loss of Three Rivers and General Thompson, General Sullivan remained committed to holding Sorrell and attempting some sort of counterattack. Meanwhile, General Benedict Arnold had seen the writing on the wall and had been planning to evacuate Montreal since early May. Arnold realized, even if his commander did not, that there was no realistic chance of holding Canada. The Continentals would have to retreat back to New York and try to prevent the British from establishing a hold on Lake Champlain. Arnold realized that his small force in Montreal would be cut off from New York if the British seized Sorel. He was determined not to get trapped there, just because the new commander had some delusion that he was going to recapture Canada. To assist with the retreat, Arnold had confiscated clothing, supplies, and just about anything else of value to the army from the merchants of Montreal. He promised them that they would be repaid and marked all the goods he packed up with each merchant's name. He then ordered an officer named Major Scott to oversee the transfer of the supplies to Fort Chambly. There, the commander, Colonel Moses Hazen, refused to accept receipt of the goods. It's not clear exactly why. It could be he objected to the confiscation of goods from his fellow Canadians. It could also be that he just hated Arnold and wanted to annoy him. 
Major Scott left the items on the riverbank outside of Fort Chambly. Of course, the unattended valuables were soon looted and disappeared. If Hazen's goal was to annoy Arnold, he definitely succeeded on that score. Arnold, who had already had words with Hazen's for his refusal to obey orders, and who had regularly gotten in trouble for allegations of misappropriated property, was livid that Hazen had allowed the property under Arnold's responsibility to be stolen. The incident would eventually lead to a court-martial. But before we get to that, the Continental Army had to escape from the British, now bearing down on them at Sorel. British Lieutenant Colonel Fraser, fresh off his victory against the Continentals at Three Rivers, continued to move his brigade up the St. Lawrence toward Sorel in mid-June. Sullivan remained firm that he would defend Sorel or die trying. Meanwhile, Arnold was busy moving troops up the Richelieu River toward Lake Champlain, where his fleet still on the lake could transport everyone back to Crown Point and Ticonderoga. He did a great job of transporting all the sick and wounded, as well as military supplies, back to safety. Arnold even had the partially built British ship in dock at Chambly disassembled and shipped south. While Sullivan worked on his plan to defeat the British, Arnold saw that the enemy could bypass Sorel and march overland to capture Fort Chambly, thus cutting off Sullivan's line of retreat. Finally, on June 13th, Sullivan sighted Lieutenant Colonel Fraser's advance forces moving on his lines at Sorel. Sullivan held a council of war at which everyone pretty much said he was an idiot if he planned to stay and fight. Reluctantly, Sullivan approved a withdrawal and moved his army south in the face of the enemy back to Fort Chambly. The next day, General Burgoyne landed 4,000 regulars and field cannon at Sorel. Another 4,000 were on their way up the St. Lawrence River. Somehow, Arnold was back in Montreal when the British took Sorel. Carleton took part of his fleet upriver toward Montreal, but unfavorable winds slowed his approach, giving Arnold time to escape and make his way back overland through Indian-infested forests to reach Saint-Jean. At Saint-Jean, Arnold reconnected with Sullivan, who had destroyed Fort Chambly on his way south. The British moved slowly and deliberately, retaking ground but avoiding any possible ambush. As a result, the Continentals had time to remove or destroy just about anything of value. Among other things, Arnold burned Hazen's house, which Hazen agreed was the proper course of action. Still, Arnold must have secretly enjoyed that. Sullivan again called a council to discuss forming a last stand at St. John, but again his officers voted him down. They were in no condition to fight. The army moved further south to Illinois, near the New York border. There, Sullivan said he would retreat no further without orders from a superior. Arnold held the rear of the escaping army at St. John. He remained on horseback until he could see the enemy approaching. He removed his saddle and shot his horse to deny it to the enemy. He then boarded the last boat south back to Ile-Anois. So by mid-June, the Continental Army encamped at Ile-Anois while General Sullivan wrote letters to everyone trying to avoid blame for losing Canada. He sent General Arnold to meet personally with General Schuyler back in Albany to justify his retreat and request further orders. 
Schuyler and Arnold agreed that it made sense to pull the army back to Ticonderoga and Crown Point, and to focus on keeping the enemy from establishing a navy on Lake Champlain. Ile-aux-Noix was a swamp. The army was now not only dying of smallpox, but taking a heavy hit from malaria as well. More than half of the 5,200 men in the Northern Army were unfit for duty. There was no way to sail ships up the Richelieu River rapids, so British General Carleton would have to disassemble the ships, carry the parts to Saint-Jean, and reassemble them there. That would take months. During that time, Arnold would build up his own navy on the lake so that he could prevent Carleton's march south to retake Crown Point and Ticonderoga in New York. Schuyler also received word that Congress had already decided to relieve Sullivan of command. Sullivan would return to New York and General Horatio Gates would take command of the Northern Army. This was good news for Arnold. He actually still liked Gates at this point, but Gates and Schuyler disliked each other, leading to more conflict and infighting that the Army really didn't need. Sullivan attempted to resign his commission, but was persuaded to stay and serve Washington at the Battle of Long Island. The Continental Army moved back to Crown Point and Ticonderoga. As expected, General Carleton did not pursue immediately, but took a slow and decisive action to capture Lake Champlain. Both armies would have several months to prepare for the next offensive. Next week, the British suffer a surprising defeat in South Carolina at the Battle of Sullivan's Island. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, thanks for sticking around for another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. Uh, Before I get to the book, I want to recommend another podcast you may like. History Unplugged covers a variety of historical topics. They recently ran a Civil War series, as well as a lighthearted series called Presidential Fight Club, to figure out which former American presidents would win against each other in a fight. I keep forgetting the first rule, though. I'm not supposed to talk about Fight Club. The podcast has covered a wide variety of other history topics as well. If you listen to the podcast episode on the events leading up to the American Revolution, you may recognize a familiar voice. Most recently, the podcast has been running a multi-episode series on the Titanic. Rumor is that they're going to do a series on the full American Revolution soon. I expect it will be a relatively short series that summarizes the era. 
So if you're listening to my podcast and impatiently wondering if we're ever going to get even to like the Declaration of Independence before we hit 100 episodes, let alone the seven years of war following that, I'm sure History Unplugged will provide a solid, entertaining summary of that same era. The host, Scott Rank, is a dedicated historian and a wonderful storyteller. I think you will enjoy his work. Scott runs a history website where you can learn more about the podcast, as well as other online historical content. If you want to check it out, go to historyonthenet.com. There's a link to it on my website as well, amrevpodcast.com. On today's episode, the British finally forced the Continentals out of Canada once and for all. This assured that Canada would remain British after the war. Many loyalists from New York, New England, and other colonies fled to Canada during the war, strengthening the Tory sentiment in Canada. Now, I've already recommended several good books about the Canada campaign, so today I'm going to recommend something completely different. I am releasing this episode on May 5th, 2019. So the next day, May 6th, is the release of a new book called George Mason, the Founding Father Who Gave Us the Bill of Rights by William G. Hyland Jr. Now, George Mason was a Virginia planter who served as a Virginia politician and an early proponent of the Patriot cause. Despite several attempts to send him to the Continental Congress, Mason repeatedly declined. He did go to the Constitutional Convention, where he emerged as a vocal opponent of the new Constitution. But Mason is probably best known for his primary role in drafting the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which eventually became the Virginia Bill of Rights and part of the Virginia State Constitution, that I read a few weeks ago in episode 91. The book probably would have been a more relevant recommendation at the end of that episode, but I didn't have the book then. I just got an advanced copy from the publisher a couple of weeks ago. I think the author, Hyland, does a pretty good job covering Mason's life. At some points, he uses the biography to cover the larger world of Northern Virginia planters, an interesting topic in and of itself. So I think it's a pretty good read. You may want to take a look, especially if you are interested in the perspective of the Anti-Federalists, those who saw the Constitution as a betrayal of the Revolution. Highland has written a few other books, mostly involving Thomas Jefferson in some way. His book on Mason is about 330 pages long, excluding appendix, notes, and index. And as I said, it goes on sale tomorrow, so you may want to check it out then. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts.